Merry Christmas, guys. Merry hey. Christmas to you, too. Merry Christmas, friends. We have never done a Christmas episode, but here we are. It's the middle of December, and we're talking about a book that is about Advent. Yeah. It's about the Incarnation, and it's a beautiful piece of work. It's called The First Advent in Palestine by Kelly Nikondeha, and we are going to have a great conversation with Kelly. I'm yep. excited about it. It's the powerful. Book, it is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, really, really beautiful take on incarnation in ways that I'm going to I'm gonna walk away from here tonight and yep. think about. And uh, Same. We're excited to kind of just fill in the gaps of the story to let Kelly do that for us. She, it, the book is really good. And we also, since it's a Christmas episode, we have a Christmas drink here to taste. Yeah. If you're new to the podcast, we do tastings of alcoholic beverages because it's a pastor and a philosopher walking to a bar, and we want it to feel like that. So our friends at Storehill BKC in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, supplied us with this brilliant Christmas ale from Anchor Brewing Company. Yeah, they actually gave us two years. So we got to do a fun side-by-side of a, a beer from 2021 and then the same beer from 2022. And actually, apparently, the recipe changes every year. So it these does. are entirely different beers. Completely different, yeah. Entirely different. And I don't know if Story Hill BKC is selling both of them right now. I know they're selling the 2022 version. Mm. But if they are selling the 2021, do yourself a favor, get both and see yeah. what you think. And it's also super fun because the 2022, I don't know if this is standard, but for us, it came in a magnum size. <laughs> so this thing is enormous. Which sounds like... PG-13. It just means <laughs> it's in a huge champagne bottle. You yeah. bring this to a party, you'll feel like the boss. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see this thing sitting in front of us. I mean, it's it's, it's a huge. Like almost blocking Kyle. It really is. <laughs> it's bigger than my face. Yeah. And it's 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 great. I mean, it's really light drinking. Um, the, the 2021 tasted kind of like an IPA to me. It didn't have as much of the Christmas spice as I expect from this style. But this one is totally different. It has oh, yeah. the spice. When we opened it, my first thought was, this smells like gin. It really does. Like strong juniper forward in this. Every time I put it, my glass close to my face, it smells like gin and juniper berries. So it's got that fresh, bright, kind of spicy yeah. character to it. And I've always associated heavy. that smell with Christmas. Oh, gin yeah, gin sure. for me from the beginning was a Christmas drink. Interesting. Yeah, most people drink in the summer, but I always think, no, nah, that's, a, that's a holiday beverage. This tastes like a holiday beverage. It's a good, it's not heavy. When I think of Christmas ales, I think of really, really heavy, loaded. I can only drink half of this beer because it's going to be too much for mm-hmm. me. It's not overloaded with spices because a lot of breweries go too far in that. It's not overly heavy. It's just, it's a good sipper. Yeah. I taste the cloves and allspice and like the, the wintry baking spices. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And I'm trying to remember, I had ginseng growing up we would find it in the forest <laughs> my dad and i think i'm remembering that flavor in here too and it, interesting it's, yeah it's it's complex and it's almost almost tea-like in the types yep. of complex yeah. flavors it has yeah and it does have a hoppy bitterness that i'm kind of liking cuts mm-hmm. through some of the spice which i enjoy anchor steam beer a lot like as far as like a, a go-to beer that's that's an easy one that i enjoy so i'm not surprised that i enjoy this is what i'm trying to say so Anchor Brewing Company, if you find it, you can fi- probably find this in any liquor store, wherever you are. If you're in Milwaukee, go to Story Hill BKC, get this, and tell them the podcast sent you. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Well, Kelly Nikondeha, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar. Well, thank you. I'm, I just wish I could have walked into a bar with you. I know. We'll have to do that sometime. We truly will. Yeah. Is there any, like, we usually ask our guests if they have an adult beverage or any kind of beverage, really, that they want to tell us about, anything like that? Well, when I am in Burundi, East Africa, which is where I live half of my life, I love Amarula, which is similar to Bailey's. It's mm-hmm. a creamed kind of a beverage yeah. made from the Amarula fruit in South Africa. Um, but it's a it's something I only allow myself to enjoy when I'm in Burundi. Nice. Uh, so if I was in Burundi, I would be having some Amarula on ice. Sometimes over here, I, I just go for the simple gin and tonic. <laughs> nice. Awesome. So Kelly, you wrote The First Advent in Palestine. Um, it's a fantastic book, especially this time of year. Merry Christmas, by the way. And um, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your family, and then really about this book and where the book came from, Kelly? I am an author obviously, uh, liberation theologian and community development practitioner. So my husband, who is Burundian, and I do work, uh, community development work in Burundi. Uh, my husband takes the lead on the field work, and I do more of the kind of the, the theology of development, um, our theological understanding that underpins our work 
Uh, and then I do a lot of the communication pieces for what we do. But it took me it took me quite a long time to own Liberation Theologian. Um, there's a lot of freight that comes with that. I'm sure you're aware. So I used to just say I was a practical theologian, but I, I think there's a little more to it than that. Mm-hmm. We live between Arizona and Burundi. We have two children that we adopted that are also Burundian. Uh, so that's part of our story as well. Why Advent? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have... Uh, Grown up, uh, I started my story in the Catholic Church, and then my parents migrated to Protestant circles, and I, you know, followed them as a kid. So, have a lot of tenure in evangelical spaces as well, and, and so I was in those two spaces. I came to love Advent. I know, obviously, from a Catholic tradition, that is part of the church calendar. Uh, But I was in Protestant spaces that also embraced the practice of Advent. And so that was always my favorite season in the church calendar. So I I have that just that kind of connection to it just Mm -hmm. from experiencing it growing up. Uh, Time where you're thinking about hope and anticipation and light. That was always my preference as opposed to Lent, Mm -hmm, (laughs) the mm -hmm. darker themes. But as I got older, and I'd say especially in the last seven to 10 years, I started to feel a heaviness as we would shift towards Advent. I would be acutely aware of the injustices that were happening around me. And I would feel this sense of darkness or even foreboding as we were moving into Advent. And at some point, you know, I felt like an anomaly. Everybody else was getting ready for the season of brightness, and I was feeling the opposite. Hmm. So I turned to uh, these texts. Uh, most people would call them the infancy narratives or the birth narratives. Um, I call them the advent narratives because I believe they're about much more than just birth or infancy. I think they Advent narratives to me is a more expansive term, Uh, but I turned to Luke and Matthew basically to recalibrate me, like realign me because somewhere along the way I've lost that Advent sparkle and I need uh, some realignment to be recalibrated. And actually when I went into the text, I found that what I was feeling, that frustration, that, that angst about injustice was not incongruent with the first advent and the the season that led into it, what predicates those advent narratives. So uh, this book is a, a bit of all of those things, my love for advent, my the way that the texts calibrated me in surprising ways. And uh, I have a, a, a deep love for Israel-Palestine and have a lot of Palestinian friends and I also wanted them to be part of the story. I wanted Mm -hmm. them to be seen as stewards of some of our holy places and people that are present in the land alongside their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so that became an important part of writing this book as well. Yeah, and that comes through loud and clear. Um, this book reminds me, Kelly, of the Jewish, the ancient Jewish practice of midrash, um, this practice of reading between the lines and kind of telling the story that's not there right on the paper, but just imagining and getting ourselves into that world. Would you agree with that? Is that kind of how you went into this endeavor? It has become part of the way that I interact with Scripture. Hmm. Will Gaffney, in her uh, in her work, calls this sanctified imagination. Mm-hmm. And I loved reading her description because that's what it feels like, is that, you know, coming from my Protestant, <laughs> a lot of my Protestant tradition, we're taught to meditate on scripture. And I think when you get that close, when you're you're doing the exegetical work, right, the scholarship piece, you're doing the meditation and reflection, inviting the spirit into that process, you get so close to the text that sometimes I feel like, you can start to hear it and see it and hear things that are happening in and around it. And I'd I'd love to believe, like Will Gaffney says, that it, it, there is some um, presence of the Spirit in that. Not that it's canon, of course, mm-hmm. but that, that there is something that the Spirit allows us to enter into, an intimacy with the text that allows us to see things. Uh, so this is, uh, when I wrote about the women of Exodus, I definitely felt that helped me see and understand these amazing women in the Exodus story. But it was no surprise that the more deeply acquainted I became with 
um, the characters in our Advent stories that that happened as well. A matter of fact, sometimes I get so close that I have nicknames for them. So I, <laughs> you know, it's not Zachariah and Elizabeth. It's it's Zach and Eliza. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's not Joseph. It's Jeff. I kind of, I get so familiar that they end up you know we end up having this shorthand for how I think and communicate about them, but. Um, yes, I would say that Midrash would be pretty close to what happened. So Joseph is Jeff for you, huh? <laughs> you know, in, in Burundi, somebody named Joseph, it's abbreviated to Jeff. Okay, there you go. And so that's kind of that, you know, it's not an American abbreviation, but in Burundi, we have a lot of Josephs and they're Jeffs. <laughs> I'll never think of Joseph the same. Yeah, no, me neither. I actually just finished Will Gaffney's book like two days ago, so... It's funny that you mentioned that because I can definitely see the imprint of it in your book and in a very good way. Yeah, both very compelling. Um, I want to read a quote from the beginning of your book and get you to comment on it, if that's okay. So you say pretty early on, we cannot grasp the fullness of the Advent narratives to come without attending to the brokenness of our world. Lament is how we name and honor what has been lost or taken from us by one empire or another. Can you explain that? One of the things that happened early in in the discovery process as I was working on these texts was I always am looking for the context. Where where do these stories come in in history? Where do they come in in the place in their place in the canon? Where, you know, I want to locate them. And it was in the process of seeing the texts, uh, seeing the advent, especially that first advent, that I realized, well, there were there was so much Jewish suffering that preceded the first advent. And it felt like a blind spot from my from my upbringing. I didn't always know, didn't always recognize uh, just the generations of of suffering under one empire or another. And so for me, recognizing what we would now call generational trauma, that that was part of what was in uh, the, I want to say like the DNA of of the family of Jesus's soon to be family, right? The this would have been passed on from generation to generation and been part of the people, part of uh, Zechariah, part of Elizabeth, part of Joseph and Mary. This this deep sense of of having been traumatized, but that kind of loss is almost like you know a call and response. If you have that kind of loss, the response is lament, is to feel that sadness and to grieve it um, and to express it, right? This is where we have the Book of Lamentations, uh, which Brugman will say is the grief work of the Old Testament, right? The response to the uh, captivity, the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the temple. And I felt that when I read these texts, especially when I went into the Apocrypha and read um, Maccabees, and you see some language that really echoes lamentations, that there's a deep grief expressed about the loss of uh, religious practice, the loss of uh, national sovereignty, uh, these things that were being experienced um, under the Seleucid Empire at that time. But I think that is part of what I personally was feeling, right, in response to the justice in our world was what was called out in me. I mean, I say heaviness or darkness, but it was lament. It was an invitation to lament and feel that sadness and express my grief. And that is part of what I saw as the predicate to the first advent that made me feel like, okay, what I feel is not unfaithful to what was happening in the first advent. And I think part of the story that I'd like us to reclaim as we move into advent. Brilliant. Um, In the very beginning of the book, as you're writing, Kelly, you kind of paint this picture that we Protestants have received, that is this intertestamental period, the, the 400 years of silence, where we like to romantically think that God just kind of withheld God's self, you know, for 400 years because Jesus is about to arrive. And you say that change, that that narrative change for you when you re-engaged with the Apocrypha. I've been engaging with Apocrypha pretty consistently for the last six or so months, and it's been really fun, really interesting. Um, but clearly, you said that it seems like the Apocrypha and the stories in the Apocrypha changed and enriched and helped your vision of the Advent grow and, and evolve. So, can you just take us into that world and what your thoughts are on the Apocrypha? Well, I think that you know, when you have a Bible like most of us Protestants do that moves from Malachi 
right into the gospels with nothing in between. It's easy to think that nothing of significance happened then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that may not be what, you know, if, if you were studying canon, people would say, well, that's not what we mean. But that's functionally what it feels like. Well, nothing important happened because nothing was recorded. We don't have any sacred texts from that time. At least that is kind of what you think if you if you don't know and you don't study, right? And I, I grew up thinking, you know, nothing significant must have happened then. And later I learned, you know, well, those were the years that God was silent. Uh, And now I'm like, well, then God was the only one who had the prerogative to be silent because now you see, looking at history, like, well, that time was full of violence and loss and pain and would have been loud with agony and mourning and weeping. And, you know, God might've been the only person who got to be silent during those years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think the stories of the the story of the Maccabees to me was an interesting one to explore, right? Because that's one of the the empire that comes before the Romans is where I mean the Seleucids who are oppressing Israel. Um, they were even be Judea and Galilee and and Samaria at the time, and this family, a priest and his sons, the Maccabees, push back. Um, it's like a David and Goliath story, right? They push back against this massive empire. And I don't, there was something about reading that story. And it's like, this is like, this is like right on the doorstep of Advent. This is like this very immediate, uh, immediate in terms of biblical terms, you know, a couple hundred years right before these stories. This is what people were experiencing, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of violence and economic hardship and loss. And, and that even when the Maccabees had their victory and re- rededicated the temple, right, which is what Hanukkah celebrates, you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters, when they celebrate the eight days of Hanukkah, they are remembering when the Maccabees pushed that empire back. It was actually a nationalistic holiday, as well as reclaiming the temple and rededicating it. But it, re- it just, to me, it, it reminds us there were things happening at that time. And we, we get a few names and faces and stories when we read the Apocrypha and can kind of see, oh, there were things happening. And, and this would have been part of the Jewish story, Jewish imagination mm-hmm. that would have been present. You yeah. know, for, and, and that right yeah. there, I think, is why it's so important to know those stories and to be engaged in them, because it's the world that Jesus was born into, and it's yeah. kind of what informed everybody's imagination and worldview. In chapter four, jumping forward, you speak of the mothers of Advent, and you envision Mary and Elizabeth as a new kind of matriarch, as opposed to some of the female leaders more familiar with in the Hebrew scriptures, such as Deborah or Jael or even Judith in the Apocrypha. Can you tell us why you see Mary and Elizabeth as a different kind of matriarch for our faith? Well, there's this beautiful intertextual refrain, right? When we hear, you know, Mary blessed among women, I always thought that that was a unique thing that Elizabeth said to her young relative, you were, you know, Hail Mary, you were blessed among women. But actually, this is a phrase that we hear Deborah, we hear said in the story about Judith and and JL. And so so you, oh, there's somehow what Elizabeth is seeing in Mary and and speaking into her and over her is meant to connect to these Mm. other stories Mm -hmm. and these other warrior women in Israel's history. But those stories were about women who used violence to be part of achieving peace, mm-hmm. uh, right? They were lopping off the head of their enemy or, you know, they were using violent means to push back. But here we have these two women, Elizabeth and, and Mary, who were going to participate in God's liberation story, not on the battlefield, but on the birthing stool. It was through the sons they were birthing and the way in which those sons would create a different kind of understanding about what peace looked like. They were birthing a completely different kind of liberation story and a nonviolent one, I believe. Um, And so I think uh, it really is looking at the old matriarchs who used the violence, which was what was available to them. And now we have these new mothers of Advent who are going to birth a completely new way to understand God's peace. 
Similarly to that, one of my favorite points in the book, your take on the Magnificat is this beautiful thing where we see no vindictiveness or vengeance, which is very common in some of these Hebrew scriptures songs. And you make the connection of how similar Jesus is to that when he reads from the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue announcing Jubilee in the book of Luke. And he seemingly omits, intentionally maybe even, the words about wrath. Can you tease that out for us a little bit? Well, the Jubilee texts have long, I mean, they are my favorite. I I love Jubilee. The stories of Jubilee really have been integral to the work that my husband and I do overseas. We do a lot of economic work. And so Jubilee economics has been really important to us. And so I one of the things I recognized when we studied Luke and the way in which Luke tells us that Jesus stands in that synagogue and, and basically quotes Isaiah about what the year of the Lord's favor would look like. It's economic policy. But while as he's quoting Isaiah, he leaves out the phrase that part of the year of the Lord's favor would involve wrath, God's wrath. Mm-hmm. And I do believe it was intentional mm-hmm. because I do believe, right, he was raised by his mother <laughs> who knew, who was beginning already to disarm the hostilities in her own way. And, mm. and I believe that that is what he was doing even in that moment. In saying that that we are going to address the problems around us. I'm surrounded by poor folks here in the synagogue. We are all poor. I mean, they were economically poor. He's going to talk about this amazing economic policy that he pulls from the Hebrew Bible, but it's not going to be with vengeance. And again, it's pointing us towards a different way of understanding the world and the economics of the world where we are dismantling those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get into the more specifically Christmas story aspect of the book, if we can. So in chapter five and following, uh, you tell the story of Jesus's birth, but you tell it quite differently from the one most of us grew up with, most of us who grew up in uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism, at least. Um, So can you relay some of the details of the Christmas story from your perspective? And specifically, like, what are some of the aspects of it that maybe Americanized traditions get wrong, you think? And why do you think thinking of them differently should make a difference to us? Mm. Well, I think the Protestant stories that I was handed, and and, I mean, Catholic too, but I spent so much time in Protestantism. I think, first of all, I was given a very harmonized picture of what, right, this story looked like. Um, And I think pulling apart Matthew and Luke and hearing them in their own right was really helpful for me to hear the stories afresh. And so in chapter five, I'm looking at the way that Luke describes the birth of Jesus. And he tells us that Joseph and Mary are coming from Nazareth. They're coming down to Bethlehem because why? They have to register for a census. And a census is never good news uh, in this context. We tend to think that a census is about counting people for representation in a democracy, but that was not the case here. You were only ever counted by the empire when they were getting ready to exact more taxes from you, more money from you. And so I think about the economic duress. Um, It wasn't just that she was pregnant and the precariousness of this journey while she was with child, but I'm sure Joseph had a lot of economic weight on his shoulders as he was thinking through what is about to happen. You know, our tax burden is going to go up and things are already really hard. And I, to me, wow, doesn't that sound so familiar? How many of us worry about taxes increasing, carry the weight of our own indebtedness and what we owe and to whom we owe it? Well, that that was part of actually the Christmas story, as Luke tells us, carrying that kind of economic woe and worry. But I would imagine that Joseph and Mary came into town and he would have had his extended ancestral family, right? He would, there would have been family down there in Bethlehem to greet him and to bring him and Mary in to the family compound. Now, this is where I think we have misunderstood that, you know, somehow they were knocking on doors looking for a place to stay at various inns, like little motels and being, you know, put away. Said, no, there's no room here. But that's just not in the text. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where we got that, but that's not in the story that they were knocking and being denied. Um, Wait, so you're telling me the play that I was in in, uh, <laughs> in middle school was incorrect? <laughs> it was all fiction. It was all fiction. I'm so sorry. But yes, they were. Yeah, a matter of fact, when I stayed in Bethlehem, uh, I stayed at uh, a little inn at the, the, the top of Star Street. 
And the innkeeper was telling me that is the such an injustice that was done to his Palestinian, you know, the people there is this idea of inhospitable innkeepers. He's like, none of us, Christian, Muslim, because uh, that's what Bethlehem is right now. He goes, there is not a single innkeeper who would turn away, you know, a pregnant woman or a woman in duress. That That's just not who we are. That's not what the Abrahamic tradition given to our cultures would have allowed. So when you're down there, you realize, oh, yeah, this doesn't seem this part of the story doesn't even jive with just what you experience when you were down in Bethlehem now. And, and he certainly says it has done a disservice <laughs> to uh, to innkeepers in mm-hmm. his region. But they actually would have been welcomed by family. And, and this is where a little bit of my experience in Burundi with my husband comes in handy because they in East Africa, they still live in family compounds. And so, you know, you have a big compound, you have the main house, maybe there's a few little apartments attached, like mother-in-law apartments. Maybe you have some buildings out back where maybe some of the workers live, maybe even some additional little buildings, you know, where you have for other people to stay or people who come and work and leave. In a similar way, Mary and Joseph would have been invited into the family compound. Now, they may not have had a room covered, you know, with a a little mat and bed, but they would have been in the family compound, safe and protected and surrounded by family and actually... uh, Kenneth Bailey writes wonderfully about this in his book as he talks about these texts, that um, that's a better way to understand what's happening here, is that they didn't have their own private room, but they were certainly in the family compound. Hmm. And so they would have been having meals with their family. They would have, Mary would have been, you know, in the kitchen with all of her, you know, new aunties and cousins, et cetera. Um, and I imagine that you know this is the context where Jesus was born in the thick of family with the women leaving the kitchen and quickly washing their hands and becoming midwives and helping welcome this little baby into the world. That's how I understand the birth story. Yeah. Yeah. It's much richer, I think, much more beautiful. I, I found, I always found the the story as it was told to me kind of lonely and maybe unnecessarily mm-hmm. so after reading your book. And so that it's going to change how I think about it going forward. Every time I see a nativity, I'm going to <laughs> think about everything that's wrong with that. So thanks we for that. We need to put more people in there, more women around. I even think Elizabeth probably, you know, Ein Karim is not that far from Bethlehem. And so my guess is, wouldn't she travel to be with her young relative after the, mm-hmm. that bonding time that they had? Wouldn't she travel to be there? with, you know, this was her family too. So wouldn't she want to be there? And so in my imagination, in that sanctified imaginative space, I think that Elizabeth was probably there holding her hand too. Yeah. Do you want to ask your question about the Magi while we're on this subject? Sure, sure. Further along, Kelly, you paint a picture of the Magi in chapter eight as a kind of group of Persian relics holding onto their ancient culture, which was stripped away by the Greek empire, hoping for liberation of their own land and how perhaps the birth of Christ doesn't just give hope for the oppressed people of Palestine, but for all people in all lands. Can you tell us about your perspective on the interesting addition of the Magi into the Advent narrative, probably the most misunderstood people in the whole Advent narrative, I would say? I agree. And it was one of the surprises working um, with these narratives was seeing them in a way that I've never heard anybody else really talk about them this way. So when I kind of found some scholarship that kind of cracked open a different understanding of who Magi were in the Persian landscape. It's like, oh my, this actually makes sense to me. And it makes them much more intriguing Mm -hmm. people in the story. Uh, So, you know, Persia was, you know, obviously to the East, but they were also under, they were also being oppressed by uh, the Greeks. So they were being subjugated as well. And some people were okay with it as long, you know, they they had learned how to make their peace. Uh, but there were people who really wanted their national sovereignty back and who uh, wanted to reclaim their, their uh, religious practices. And the Magi represented kind of that strain. I don't know if I'd call them relics so much as re- like these um, embedded resistors, mm. you know, that they mm-hmm. had never given up hope that that they would be able to come back or, or that there would be a reemergence mm-hmm. of, of true Persian culture, uh, that they'd be able to throw off their overlords, as it were. And so they see this star in the sky and they follow it, which, 
you know, you could understand it as a bit, um, like they were kind of being traitors, right? They were going, they were going to go travel into enemy territory and, but they were, I see them as people, men who were, and they would, in this story, they would have been men who were desperate for hope. And if something was happening and stars always indicated in this time that there was something happening, celestial um, bodies in motion always signified something that was afoot, that they would have followed with this sense of hope that if something is happening, you know, and, and as they would have been, you know, scholars or at least learned people would have figured out where they're headed and, oh my gosh, we're, we're on the brink of entering into this territory, Herod's territory. And the stories from this time would have, obviously they would have known, oh, they some people expect a Messiah, a, a different Messiah to come here. And the sense I have is that they recognized if a new king could be born in Judah, in Judea, and could kind of give hope that they could throw off the Roman Empire and have a new season of, of sovereignty, maybe it could happen in Persia too. And so if we can come and bear witness to this new thing happening here, you know, in Bethlehem, that it gave them hope for what could happen back home. So one of the things they took back with them, I think, was some contraband hope uh, to keep them doing the subversive work um, of resisting the empire back in, in their home country. At least that's the sense I get. Mm -hmm. What happens when two great minds armed with profound ideas go toe-to-toe -to -toe in pitched, if generally polite, battle? You get a revolution in podcasting. Philosophy versus improv. Philosopher Mark Linzenmeyer and improviser Bill Arnett each try to teach each other their crafts via conversation, scenes, and what can only be called performance art. They're often joined by a guest or two from the philosophy or entertainment worlds. Philosophy versus Improv is a show where anything can happen. Filled with drama, creativity, humor, and connection, this is a show you definitely want to tune into. Philosophical concepts are grounded with real and fantastic situations. Forget anything you know about improv games. This is what's called long-form improv, where you spin out a world right there in the moment. The combination of these two is like nothing you've ever experienced. Add Philosophy versus Improv to your listen queue wherever you listen to podcasts or find them at philosophyimprov.com. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit, if that's okay. I think we'll come back to some of the Christmas story stuff a little bit later, though. Um, so a recurring theme in the book is Israeli-Palestinian relations, both modern and historic. Um, and it's something I know you have a lot of personal experience with and are very passionate about. Um, so... I'm going to ask this question in two parts. I want to ask about incarnation, because that's what Advent is really all about. And I want to know how your experience with and study of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine has informed your understanding of incarnation and your experience of it during the Advent season. Well, the way that I'll respond about incarnation, I mean, it may or may not go directly <laughs> um, in the in the vein of your question, but I, but what I, yeah, I've always thought of incarnation in connection with Holy Week, with, I don't, you know, atone, I, I've always thought of it more in terms of atonement, hmm. you know, that he, we had to have this pure, you know, we had, Jesus had to come and do some things on earth so that we could be saved. I yep. mean, that's what I inherited theologically when I was younger. And as I, delve deep into the Palestinian narrative, both then, you know, ancient Palestine and now, I realize now my understanding of Advent, of incarnation is so much more shaped by these narratives. Because what I now see is that, you know, God coming, taking on flesh at this time and in this place, God was stepping into a place of being under the thumb of an empire, of being oppressed, of being colonized. In the body of, of Jesus is generational trauma. That's the, that is the DNA that he, that Jesus took on, right? Being born to Mary and, and being raised by Joseph. This was this kind of trauma, this understanding of economic duress, this 
um, living among people who are always losing land and losing their livelihood, that this was in the in the body and the experience of of Jesus. Um, I even think about you know when Jesus was born, and of course Matthew will tell us that Jesus is born and quickly has to leave the country as a political refugee uh, because Herod puts a target on his back. He's afraid of a of a usurper, right, for his throne. And you never hear again about Jesus going to Bethlehem. Now, there could be other reasons, but my sense is, well, wouldn't Jesus have grown up with survivor's guilt? Because people in his family system, people in his region didn't get an angelic heads up, right? Hmm. They didn't get to, to leave the country. They were there when Herod's armies came through and were looking for a baby and killing. And, and I just imagine that even in the body of Jesus was you know, the reality of having survived when others didn't. Um, so I I think, you know, all of this is in the body of God. You know, the, the eternal mm-hmm. memory, the eternal body of God now has in it this deep knowledge and experience of trauma and loss and survivor's guilt and, sti- you know, surviving stigma, you know, being raised by Mary and questions around his paternity, like, all of that is in the eternal memory of God. Um, and that that is an understanding of, of incarnation I never had before, but mm-hmm. it is the people in the place of Palestine, both then and now, that kind of helped me to get the texture of it, to see that that is, is really what incarnation is, at least for me. So good, Kelly. You know, the charismatic in me is wanting to be like, come on, amen, let's go. <laughs> that's That's beautiful stuff. Yeah, no, it's really great. Um, I want to ask, this isn't on the outline, but I'm curious what you make of the angels. Uh, so in the book, you you kind of just go with it. You don't really necessarily question the, super, not all of the supernatural elements. I think you do question a couple of them, but that one you don't. Um, mm-hmm. And the angels are just a natural part of the story as you would read it. Um, so I'm curious, what do you think is going on there? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess my my thought about the angels as I was doing the work was more that uh, they were, I guess the word that I thought of was the word host. And again, growing up, I just always thought, you know, a host of angels was a group of angels, you know, like a school of fish or, you know, like it was <laughs> like, you know, I had never really thought about what that word was, what it really meant. The group of angels, they're up there, they're singing, they're the choir, you know, yay, <laughs> enjoy to the world. But actually, you know, host it, in the text, it's actually a military term. Hmm. You know, it, would, it, would, it was like, a you know, a, these were the angelic, they would have been the warriors, mm-hmm. you know, they were um, not the choir, so to speak, they, they would have been known to be or that word that language that Luke used had connotations of more of warrior angels, really. But what that spurred for me was the thought that here are these shepherds out in the field, you know, they're the lowest of the low, they want to be out of the limelight, they don't want to be seen because to be seen by the empire is to be in trouble. They're just doing their thing at night, watching the flocks, the last thing they want is to have, you know, to be to have a spotlight on them. And yet here, who do we get? The the angelic host, you know, yes, they're warriors, but they're they're a different, there again, it's this little reversal. They're not the warriors that they're used to being afraid of. Mm-hmm. The Roman warriors that would come and and be a menace to them. It was a different kind of host. It was a different kind of militia that was coming their direction and and shining on them and inviting them into this different story. So, I mean, that was where my kind of my imagination went when I thought of the angels as well. They were expecting a certain kind of army and they got a completely different kind. Um, And boy, did that, you know, change their perspective and of who they were and how they could be part of God's story. Yeah. I really like that. I've always found the idea compelling that if, if you're expecting God to be a warrior or to do some overthrowing or do some defeating of your enemies, Christianity puts a weird spin on that. By It's not that he didn't, it's that we had the wrong idea of what that would look like. <laughs> that, well, look, that if these this angels is what it looks like when God's going to war. Right? I mean, that's the story that we get, that they, they had pronouncements of joy and good tidings or, you know, Mary singing her song. It was a song of defiance, but it was a song, not a yeah. sword that she exactly. used, yeah. that she wielded, right? There's this, again, this, this sense of it's the way that God 
the, the way that God's peace comes yeah. is not the way that we expect. And that, it's, of course, carries first. all the way through Jesus's teaching and death right. and the whole thing. Yeah, we could talk a lot about that, but <laughs> um, but I want to I want to read a, another chunk here from the book. This is from chapter nine. Brings the whole thing home for Americans, I think, and this is about empire and its mm. relation to Advent. And I'll just get you to riff on it, if that's okay. So you say, this is on page 152, Advent is the subversion of imperial power. As such, Advent will always confront earthly empires, bringing God's disarmed peace, which arrives like a baby to an ordinary people in an insignificant town on the edge of the empire. And the cycle of Advent and atrocities in its aftermath continues as we opt for familiar modes of human power. The Pax Persica, the Pax Romana, and now the Pax Americana have all purported to be substitutes for God's peace. Only when Advent is the final word will empires and their economies cease and the meek at last inherit the land. Only when we find ourselves summoned by God alongside ordinary priests, barren or abused women, shepherds, tradesmen, and foreigners participating in God's subversive peace campaign can we incarnate another kind of peace? Can we inherit the land? I think this really is the challenge of the Advent narratives to us. And it's sadly a challenge I don't hear very often from pulpits during Advent. I mean, if I were to say the thing that I want to say after that paragraph <laughs> that my editor told me to be a little careful about saying, you know, it's that when we look at the world and wonder, well, Jesus came and why hasn't the world changed? Now, I mean, I hope you see what I, I it's not like Jesus came and everything turned out perfectly, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Matthew's going to tell us, no, Jesus was born and, you know, he had to become a political refugee and there was still a bloodbath in Bethlehem. Like bad atrocities kept happening. And, and why do they still, why do we still have empire and violence and shootings why, why is the world still this way? And I think it's because we still have not taken seriously the Advent admonition, which is if you keep believing in Caesar's kind of peace, you will keep getting Caesar's kind of world until Ooh. you really believe that, that peace comes at the birth stool and not on the battlefield, until you really believe it and start behaving in different ways and subverting the empire you are going to keep getting more and more empires. And I just think we haven't yet taken the message seriously enough to see the substantive change that we hope for, that I hope for. So good. It's really powerful. Yeah. yeah. That's a, I had the thought while you're saying that peace, how did you put it? Peace begins on the birth stool and not the battlefield. That's a deeply feminist insight. <laughs> it's just so congruent with the, the whole tradition of feminist ethics of the last 50 years. It's remarkable. Yeah. At the at pretty much the end of your book in chapter 10, you talk about Joseph and how Joseph, it's fairly likely he would have been working in a neighboring city where there was a really violent revolt and um, an insurrection that happened with a devastating response and a violent response from the Roman Empire, mass crucifixions of men and enslavement of children and worse. And you speculate that Joseph, Jesus' father, might have been killed in this slaughter. And mm -hmm. just can you speak to that reality, that possibility, and what that might mean for Jesus as a boy, a youth, a, you know, growing into a man? Right. Well, here I'm following the the scholarship of of John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg, mm -hmm. uh, who good who people to follow. First introduced yeah. me to this idea in uh, their book, The First Christmas, uh, which I highly recommend, by the way. So Sepphoris is just across a shallow, very shallow valley from Nazareth. And I, I was the oddball who wanted to go to Sepphoris. You know, <laughs> my friend in Jerusalem was like, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. I'm like, I want to go to Sepphoris. He's <laughs> like, nobody has ever in 20 years asked me to go to Sepphoris. <laughs> but I wanted to see for myself. And it's sure enough, across this very shallow valley, you could see Nazareth. And, you know, it was very likely that... Uh, this would be a place where Joseph would have worked. There was a lot of building going on in Sepphoris at the time. And so as 
whether you believe he was a carpenter or a stonemason, he was some kind of uh, worker, this would have been a place where he could have found employment. But it was also the place, it, uh, Sepphoris was uh, the administrative head for the region. So there was there was a huge cache of weapons there. There, were, I mean, there was all the, there was bank records. There's all these kind of things that would be in an administrative center. And so they also had a lot of activity around Sepphoris, not just building activity, but skirmishes with rebels and bandits and militias from the empire, et cetera. And, and so uh, history says that there was a particular rebellion that you know Rome decided they were going to come in with a punishing force was I think how Josephus described it with a punishing force um, so that we don't have to do this again and or at least not anytime soon and mm -hmm. so they massacred they say about 2,000 men Josephus says about 2,000 men were crucified um, children were enslaved uh, women were were raped and it, it it's very likely that this is when, you know, that Joseph would have fallen prey, that he would have been one of the men working in Sepphoris who got caught kind of in the crossfire. And so, you know, you have to think, what was it like for Mary and Jesus? You know, they would have probably have lost more than just Joseph that day, right? Lots of neighbors and extended family, et cetera. But that they would have been part of that collective mourning. They would have lost you know, they're in, in that culture to lose the male breadwinner was and for to be a she would have then been right. The single woman, the single mom, Jesus would. Have, and of course, we see this in the Gospels. So many questions about the paternity of Jesus. And, you know, when they would say, you know, where's the son of Mary? It's it was a way of saying because he doesn't have a daddy. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no guy around. So there was a lot of stigma that Jesus would have had to grown up with not having his father around. Um, and I, I don't know, I just think that, that that would be part of the loss, again, when we come back to incarnation, you know, that Jesus even knew what it was to lose a parent, uh, to be that vulnerable in society. Um, I, I I just imagine that is part of, again, what, what is in the body of God. Yeah. Let me um, kind of close our time with a quote from page 170 that just stopped me in my tracks, Kelly. And if you want to, after I read this, you can just riff on it a little bit or put a little punctuation on it. But you say, so for at least part of his childhood, Jesus grew up without Joseph and a landscape littered with reminders of men lost, his own father likely among them. He didn't escape the heartbreak or the haunting presence of empire. He was not spared the personal trauma of loss or the difficult learning of how to live without a loved one. Jesus not only inhabited a traumatized landscape, he was a victim of imperial trauma from a young age. Before he carried the cross through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, his body carried loss in Nazareth. This is incarnation. Not inhabiting a body of privilege exempt from poverty and violence, but living in a body thick with the trauma common to most in Galilee and Judea. God incarnated this pain in his own human body. It became a part of his human experience and is now woven into God's eternal memory. Jesus had a lifelong relationship with Roman soldiers and those who colluded with the empire that killed so many of his neighbors and relatives and perhaps even his own father. Consider the deeper power then of Jesus' words of love, forgiveness, and mercy in light of his own trauma. To love those who wrought suffering on his family and himself is divine love. His human grief pierced straight into the heart of God and God's love came in response. How about that? Oh, it makes me cry because I remember um, I remember writing that part. Actually, it was pretty visceral uh, when I wrote it. Uh, I wrote that part through tears um, on my computer. Mm -hmm. um, I just think I doing this, exploring these texts, and thinking for the last two and a half years, and coming to understand Jesus and his family, biological family in a new way. I just can't see any part of Jesus's story that isn't somehow now deeper or shaded differently because I see him as that man who bore that trauma and that deep pain and himself was bereft. And it makes the way that he responded to the people around him all the more stunning to mm -hmm, me, mm -hmm. all the more holy, all the more uh, divine. I mean, I mean, just how could you know, now I read stories about how he, you know, helped the centurion or how he uh, 
respond. And I just think how knowing what that man represents mm-hmm. for him in his own, not just his people, but his own personal story, yes. knowing what some of these people would have represented. And this is some, this, this is a savior who did his own work, right? I think of people like Richard Rohr who talk about um, what you don't allow to be transformed. You end up transmitting. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think what kind of deep transformation, because we hear that Jesus had to learn obedience. Jesus had to learn and grow the way we humans learn and grow, right? Part of that had to be Jesus himself. In, in, and I say himself being that he presented in a, a male body in when he came to earth. But think about all the inner work that had to happen you know, in the person of Jesus to not transmute, to not, you know, respond with violence or anger or bitterness but to actually be able to respond with love and nonviolence and i mean that that is divine yep yep that's the picture of incarnation that i uh, that i now have that it, it's deeper and and reverberates in a way that i just it never did before for me yeah well, if you're looking for an Advent read or post-Advent read, Christmas read, this is the one for you. The first Advent in Palestine. Kelly Nikondeha, thank you so much for joining us on A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar. It's been really just a, a fun chat. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar. We hope you're enjoying the show as much as we are. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com forward slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person. Also, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode, if it's good enough. If anything we said really pissed you off, or if you just have a question you'd like us to answer, or if you'd just like to send us booze, send us an email at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. Catch all of our hot takes on Twitter at at ppwbpodcast, at Randy Nye, and at Robert K. Whitaker, and find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next time. Cheers. And just in time for the holidays, Kyle, you don't sound like yourself. No, no, I've got a little bit of a cold going on here, folks. So if I sound a little more masculine than usual, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> it's actually funny being sick because my voice always lowers and it's like I can hit notes I can't usually hit. So I've been singing national songs to myself all day. <laughs> so you haven't been really singing. You've been mumbling national songs. No, no, I've, I've been singing them. I was al- home alone working today. so <laughs> I'm just make, I just took a shot at the national if you couldn't tell. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, no, the album version, not the live version. <laughs> <laughs> well, hope you get better, and uh, I look forward to getting whatever shit you got. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to share. Merry, <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs>